I right, Brian? Is it Prodigal God? Really good book. Everybody needs to read that book. It's just the gospel. And um, so listen to it. I listened to it, and now I have read it a few times. But it's the story of the, uh, the two lost sons and the, and the father. The younger son goes off, asks the dad for his inheritance, goes, spends it on loose living, trying to impress people, throwing parties, prostitutes, just went off the deep end as far as doing his own thing. And then you have the older brother who just as lost as his younger brother, but his lostness looks like being good, being moral, but at the expense of leveraging it to control. (laughs) And that's not what love does, right? You read 1 Corinthians 13, love doesn't control. God didn't control us even in the garden. He said, here's two trees. You get to choose life or death. (laughs) So nothing's changed with the Lord. We're the ones that change. And so part of what this story is about is redefining sin. And so you have the two lost sons reveal to us the main two ways people try to find happiness and fulfillment. One is through self-discovery, and the other is through moral conformity. Each is a way of finding personal significance and worth addressing the ills of the world and determining right and wrong, and both of them are self-righteous. Both of them make you the God. That's the, that's the original sin. God, I know better than you. That's what it boils down to, right? Every, think about every sin, I mean, every ill we have is because, God, I know better than you. I'm going to do it my way. And so both of these sons are doing it their way. And so the, the Pharisees, Jesus is speaking to Pharisees. And so he's, he's got a crowd. Some, a lot of them are Pharisees, and, and some of them are the tax collectors the, and the, the younger son type guys who are, you know, they, they just don't. They've said to heck with moral conformity. We're going to do our thing. We're going to try to make money. We're going to do, we're going to party, all that kind of stuff. And so you, you have the, the Pharisees represent the moral conformity, and they put the will of God and the standards of the community ahead of ind- individual fulfillment. Noble things, like good things, right? You put others before yourself. You're, you're conscientious of your community, of your family. But when you fall in this approach, you're, you're, you're judged by how abject and intense your regret is. So this is a little overview from last week, if you, were, if you were here. And so in this view, even our failures, you have to measure up. So you, I, this is what I was talking about, the Pharisees. They do the, the ripping of the robes when they hear blasphemy. They do, ah! and because they got to let everybody know how offended they are. They would even, even, you know, Old Testament, when you were repenting, what did you do? You put on a sackcloth, chafe yourself, and then throw dust on your head. Do you see how repentant I am? They're trying to even prove to God, like, God, I'm really serious about this. And, and you know, it's, 
I, those types of things always is like God sees the heart. He sees the guy who's like, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is how I get God back on my good side. And then there's the guys like, I really, God, don't want to do this again. The younger brother represents the approach of self-discovery. And so this paradigm holds that individuals must be free to pursue their own goals and self-actualization regardless of custom and convention. So this is uh, rife in the United States of America. We're very, you know, independent, free. You, you're, we're very autonomous, every individual. And I don't like the, um, the phrase, what's your truth? I think it's like, that's like one of the biggest piles of dung out there. Because if, if my truth is to stab you in the heart with a knife and you're really serious about me having my truth, then what are you going to do now? And then you say there's no absolute truth. You just said an absolute by saying there's no absolute truth. There's truth. And it's your truth, this whole moral, it's, it's not, and ultimately what people do is they do fall on an absolute. They just don't, they're just deceived. And so then they, when you don't, when your truth doesn't line up with their truth, then obviously they're going to try to bend you their way. And so that's why we got to know what the truth is. And this is, and ultimately it's like, I got to submit to God's definitions of what's good and evil, what's right, what's true. Because as I've said before, I don't even know how the, my shoes were made. I don't know how my car runs, except for a few things in it. I don't know a whole lot. Of, I don't know. Jessica understands me better than myself. How, how do I expect to understand the world? How do I, I expect to understand what's good and what's evil? You, I mean, if you, if you understand everything about God, you are God. And so it's, it's, a, uh, it's a prideful thing. We've all done it at some point in our lives. So that's why we're all in the same boat. And so this, this uh, self-discovery view, the world would be a far better place if tradition and hierarchical authority and other barriers to personal freedom were, were weakened or removed. So both self-discovery enthusiasts and moral conformists are self-righteous. They're depending on their rightness or how right they are. There are moral conformists who slip into self-discovery as release valve. This is actually, you've seen a lot of uh, TV preachers have done this, where they've fallen into sin, adultery, whatever it might be. And it's because they've been living out of their own strength. But then you have self-discovery people who, with regard to religious conservatives, with all the self-right, they, they approach religious conservatives with all the self-righteous condescen condescension of the worst Pharisee. <laughs> so that's why, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's this, this pot calling the kettle black thing. So how's the gospel of Jesus Christ unique? The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about religion or irreligion, morality or immorality, moralism or relativism, conservatism or liberalism. 
In Jesus Christ's gospel, everyone is wrong. Everyone is loved. And everyone is invited to recognize this and change. I love that. In Jesus Christ's gospel, everyone, uh, the older brothers divide the world into two, the moral and the, the immoral. Younger brothers do the same thing, the open-minded slash tolerant versus the bigoted or narrow-minded. The gospel of Jesus is split into two groups too, the humble and the proud. God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. That's all, that's all that matters in God's eyes. And, hum, and humility recognizes, I need you. I don't know my right hand from my left. You remember at the end of Jonah? Jonah was mad that God saved Nineveh when they repented, and they were brutal, immoral people, tortured the people that they conquered. Uh, sexual immorality, rampant. God sent Jonah to Nineveh and to give them the message of repentance, and they did repent for three days. And they, they even made the, the animals put on, you know, take off the ashes and, and fast and everything else. The women, children, men, everybody. And God had mercy. And Jonah's like, I knew you'd do that. I knew you'd do that. Because the um, Assyrians were enemies of Israel. They had tortured Israelites. And God said, why would I not have compassion on a people that don't know their right hand from their left? That's what he did with us. He's like, you didn't know your right hand from your left, and I came and I showed you. That's what I'm saying. We're, we're all in that same boat. This, the self-discovery, the moral conformist, we're all there. It's all in the same boat. The, the, what's, the key is, is I, am I going to recognize that I need God? I need Jesus. So redefining lostness, what does it mean to be lost? We understand that what it looks like from the younger brother's experience and perspective, but what does it look like from the older brother's experience and perspective? So the older brother's perspective is it's a much more subtle but just as devastating form of lostness because it's harder to recognize. And you have, you know, these... Um, this group, Sister Song, that's opposing this bill, I'm sure in their minds they think they're doing the right thing, right? And they, they think they're having compassion. They think that they're trying to, to do justice. But it's according to their own standards. It's not according to the Lord. So it's wrong. <laughs> It's just wrong, and it's evil. And you give yourself over to those things, it just increases. You worship those things, you become like what you worship. The Bible says that whatever you worship, you will become like that. So when you worship gods that are deaf, dumb, and mute, what do you become? Deaf, dumb, and mute. You can't hear, you can't believe, you can't see. You become deceived. When you worship the living God, who's eternal, what do you become? Eternal, full of life. And so, so the older brother, it, it's a much more subtle um, way of believing. 
So there's four symptoms that the, uh, this older brother lostness looks like. Number one is anger and superiority. So when life doesn't go as you want, you're not just sorrowful, but you're deeply angry and bitter as well. You go from, I hate thee, meaning I hate you, God, for doing this to me, to I hate me, to self-loathing. You go from blaming God, how could you do this? I've been good, I've done this, I've, I've checked all the boxes. I, this is why, you know, people have a hard time with uh, Jesus being the only way. He's like, I'm a good person. Like, I, I try not to hurt anybody. You know, <laughs> you do all those things that we've heard. And, it's, and so they've, they've got this uh, give and get type reward system. The only problem is we're just, we have no zero righteousness. And so when life doesn't go well, it's blaming God. I hate, I hate you. This is, your, this is your fault. And when they actually do mess up and they do recognize it, it goes into this self-loathing thing, all right, which is, can be just as deep of a pit. Elder brothers are unable to handle suffering because they're living a good moral life as a way of controlling their environment. You know, uh, a lot of times this is what uh, the prosperity gospel has gotten into is like, I want some financial security. So I'm going to, you know, some of the preachers would tell them, if you sow a thousand dollar gift today, then, um, you know, it's even been as absurd as like this, this hurricane that's coming, you'll be safe from it. And, and so I believe God wants to prosper us. I believe that he wants us to do well. I do believe that message has gotten perverted. Now, the good thing is one of the guys that's done that in the past has repented, Benny Hinn. He says it's asking people for a certain amount of money in order to receive X, Y, Z has been an offense to the Holy Spirit, and he repented publicly for that, which I, I'm... I've always believed that Benny Hinn was a man of God. I didn't, always, I didn't agree with everything that he said, but I've had friends that are healed in his crusades. The man is, and he has, there are things that he teaches about God that are, that are good. And so I'm just thankful that he actually had the humility to confess it. To me, I'm like, that's a big deal. That shows me actually a lot about Benny Hinn. And so that's the thing in the world. When you humble yourself, there's, gra there's grace there. You remember when the uh, baseball was having all the steroid stuff going on? Well, there was two, uh, two pitchers from uh, the Yankees that were accused of using steroids. One was Roger Clemens, and the other one was Andy Pettit. Roger Clemens denied it, fought it, continues to fight it. It's never been cleared. And as, he's a Hall of Fame caliber pitcher, but he's not in the Hall of Fame because... All the writers think that he used steroids. Andy Pettit immediately confessed. He said, yeah, I was trying to recover quicker from an injury. I used them. It was wrong. I'm sorry. Nobody ever talks about Andy Pettit. And he's in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> there's, just, there's grace when you humble yourself. And so... <clears throat> 
that's what I'm talking about, Benny Hinn. I was like, yes. I just, like, when he, when he did that, I was like, man, I felt like a love for Benny Hinn. I was like, this is good. This is, like, going to bring healing. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Benny, for humbling yourself. You have a, there's a strong sense of superiority. So your self-image is based off being hardworking, moral members of an elite clan or extremely smart and savvy. Now, like I said, this is, the reason this is so deceptive is because a lot of these things are good. Like you, want, you want to work hard. The Bible says be diligent. Don't be a sluggard. You want to, you want to have moral standards. You want to think about your community. You know, racism and classism can fall under this, this uh, clan kind of tribal thinking. But, but this uh, older brother self-righteousness, it hides under the claim that they're only opposing the enemies of God. So when we're talking about abortion, when we're talking about other moral issues, we fight differently from the world when somebody hurls insults at us we don't hurl insults back we bless them it doesn't mean you dilute the message whatsoever you're like hey man we disagree i believe life starts upon conception but jesus loves you and you can't make me not love you i remember todd white said some dude was just railing at him on the streets he was sharing the gospel with him and Todd White just came and said, you can't make me your enemy, man. I'm just sorry. You just, that's just not, a, that's just not a, a, an option for you. That's my choice. He said, you can't make me your enemy. <laughs> the older brother cannot forgive his younger brother for the way he weakened his family's wealth and status. Now, how many of y'all have... Uh, come out of addiction or you've been in a family of, with addiction or whatnot. So you don't, you know, so the addiction cycle can, can actually work with this because what you'll have is, so you have like an alcoholic and he's repeatedly letting down his family, letting down his wife, letting down his kids. And then you have his wife and his wife suffering, living with alcoholic. And so the addict's wife or the spouse, you know, interchange it, she can develop an, an enormous amount of self-pity and self-righteousness. It's not negating that there's actually, there's, she's suffering. But self-pity and self-righteousness actually just kind of go hand in hand. And so the spouse will bail out the, the addictive, the, 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 the wife will bail out the, addict husband and that hold the record of sin over his head which leads to more self-loathing which leads him back to the bottle and then the cycle continues and so it's seductive it's like i'm so when you when so that's codependency uh, as well where you have the addict and then you have the um, the enabling partner but when you hold something over somebody's head, was, remember what love says in 1 Corinthians, it keeps no record of wrongs. God, what does he do with our sins? He does this, this is the east, 
pumps them to the east. This is the west, pumps them to the west. This is the sea behind me, tosses it in the sea, hurls it into the depths. It sinks down to the depths of the sea. He remembers it no more. That's what the Lord does. His loving kindness as far as the east is from the west. And so when we hold, this is, a, this is older brother stuff. Okay, I'll, we'll do it this time. And then the moment somebody messes up, you've done this to me. I can't remember how many times. But I'll go along with it. It's, just, it's self-righteousness, it's self-pity, and then you... It's a pit. You are digging a pit for yourself. There's no victims in the kingdom. Jesus suffered the most horrible. Jesus became a victim, so we don't have to become victims. Am I right? He surrendered to the authorities. He became that victim, the injustice. Nobody suffered injustice more than Jesus. Nobody suffered wrongly more than Jesus. So he became a victim of injustice, so we don't have to be victims anymore. And so that's older brother thinking when you hold records of wrongs over people's heads. People who are no longer sure what God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from their their present spiritual achievements are subconsciously, radically insecure persons. And their insecurity shows itself in a pride, a fierce, defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. Your defensiveness is a great uh, indicator of your pride level. Trust me, I know. Jessica, especially early on in our marriages, she said something. I was just like, let's get in a fight. Let's get in a fight. Jessica's confrontational, and I'm, I'm, more introverted, but I'm, I, I was like, I'm not, I'm down for a fight though. <laughs> and so I kept saying, I was like, when I defend myself, it doesn't go very well. <laughs> Nobody's really winning. And it kind of stinks. Like, I don't, and so I just, so in my, you know, in my marriage, marriage is your, is your best training ground for righteousness and becoming like Jesus. That's what he designed it for, especially, uh, man, I'll speak to you, man, is, is it's, it's the training ground to becoming more like Jesus. Or anyways, and so it's, so we dive, we, we, we lay down our life for our, our wives, just like Jesus laid down his life for the church. So it means you lead by humbling yourself. You lead by not defending yourself. I mean, I'm the man of this house. You see the britches that says gay family right here? I'm wearing the britches. And all you do, that's called bullying. Hey, I'm stronger than you. Do what I want. That's bullying. Now, there is an authority that a man carries that's different from the wife and there's an authority the wife carries that's different from the man. God set that in order that the, that the man is head of the household. But what did Jesus model as being head of the house? He, he emptied himself and came in the form of a servant. 
and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so that's the model of husbandry. But that's also the model of relationships. And it doesn't mean you let people walk over you. If people are not respecting, you know, you, you don't defend yourself, but they keep trying to <laughs> bully you, then, you, you know, perfectly fine to set up some boundaries there, but you're not trying to defend yourself. Third symptom is, is joyless, fear-based compliance. If uh, you need more joy in your life, I'll let my son lay hands on you. I have him pray for me. So, But uh, when you're, this joyless, fear-based compliance is being faithful to a commitment. Uh, it does involve a certain amount of dutifulness. There's times where you got to change your child's diaper and you'd really like to go to sleep. There's times where you'd re you're really hungry, but somebody's got to be fed before you get fed. There's times where you'd like to sit down, but somebody else needs to sit down more than you do. You get the picture. And so there's times, if we, if, we if we went by our emotions and what we felt like doing, I'd be watching a lot of football. I'd be drinking a lot of Coke. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's not because you feel that doesn't make it right in any way. And so we can get to the place when you, when you uh, start living out in that spirit of self-control, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. When you surrender to the Holy Spirit, guess what he gives you? He gives you some self-control. So when I surrendered to my life, my life to God, I got self-control from looking at porn. Didn't have to, I didn't look at it anymore. I was able to say no. Before that, I was a slave. I'd feel that thing get on me. I couldn't control it. It was, it was a taskmaster, and it was a, I was a slave. And that's what it says you are. You're a slave to sin before Jesus comes. So that thing was owning me. And so we want to, there, there's a certain level of dutifulness that's that's useful in the Christian life. But if there's no if there's no joy in the moment and you're and you're just kind of doing this, you're ready to crack the whip on somebody or you're looking at it, it's like look what he's doing. I can't believe he's doing that. And you know your joy level is just then you're not walking with Jesus because he was full of joy. He said the joy set before him. He looked at the cross and he's like I see them, Lord. I see them, Father. I see the people. The joy set before them. He endured the cross. A slave works out of fear, the fear of consequences imposed by force. The fear of punishment is what, he, is what uh, First John talks about. It. And Jack Frost, he has a quote, he says, Christianity can be a heavy trip. And so if you stand up here, Greg, for a second. So if uh, I told Greg, I was like, hey, man, this is based on older, older brother thinking. Like, hey, what I'm doing is leveraging my relationship with the Father. Greg, you're a new believer. Happy to hear that. All right, um, you need to pray two hours a day. Hold, hold that book right there. 
and uh, you need to fast three days a month. There you go. You also need to read five chapters a day. Um, you need to uh, be in at least two Bible studies a week. You need to be winning 10 lost people a week. Whatever. Are any of these things bad? <laughs> but when it's what my relationship with... Thanks, man. You put all that down. You're getting the picture. Christianity can be a heavy trip if there's no joy in it. Joy comes out of love. We have to fall in love with Jesus again. And, G and the way you walk with Jesus is the same way you came to him. Colossians says, as you receive the Lord Jesus, walk in him. And you, you, you receive Jesus by faith, so you walk by faith. You don't walk by works. And so even when we've been, even if we're being negligent on our end in our relationship with God, the way we fix that is like, Lord, I know I've been negligent, but here I am right now. And it starts new from that moment with, with the Lord. And he doesn't hold the record of wrongs over your head. He says, son, I'm glad you're back. Now let's go. <laughs> let's do this. And so obedience matters. Holiness matters. Commitment over convenience matters. But you, you have to have the engine, which is knowing that you're loved by God. If you don't know that, all this is going to turn into a joyless experience. And Jack Frost, he, you know, he said, Christianity, it's a heavy trip. The fourth one is a lack of assurance of the Father's love. The older brother said, you never threw me a party. When he could have, like, got, he could have gone into the smokehouse and gotten the fattened calf anytime he wanted. The Father didn't have to throw him a party because he already had it. And so as long as you're trying to earn salvation or God's favor, by controlling God through goodness, you'll never be sure you've been good enough. I hate that trip. I've been on that train. It does, it's never enough. The voice that says, that's not enough, that's the devil. And the voice that says, you don't have to do anything. <laughs> you don't have to do anything. You don't have to pursue God. That's the devil. It's the radical middle. And so we don't come, we don't approach the Lord based on whether we've had a good day in God or a bad day, because that's it's, it just doesn't end. It's a pit. It's like a bottomless pit. So three signs you have a lack of assurance of God's love. Every time something goes wrong in your life or a prayer goes unanswered, you wonder if it's because you aren't living right in that area. Secondly, criticism from others doesn't just hurt you, it devastates you. With little assurance of God's love, the approval of others is magnified. Jesus' best friends betrayed him. 
and it didn't move him from his mission at all. And I'm not saying that Jesus, it didn't hurt Jesus' heart, but I'm saying what was greater was his father's love and who he knew he was. And then the third sign is just a dry prayer life. And so if your conversations with God are are goal-oriented, then it's a business relationship. So when I meet with a business partner, it's, we're not, it's not a whole lot of chit-chat. We're like, hey, man, we got to do this. We got to get this done. We need this. We need that. Make sure you call the contractors. We got to build this. Amen. That's when you, and sometimes, you know, we, we grow in our relationship with the Lord. I started off as a slave with God, like, that kind of mentality when I started. But even I was fully surrendered to the Lord, but I started off with like a taskmaster idea of who God was. And then he grew me and he's like, I'm a son. I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not this, a servant anymore. I'm actually a son. And, and then he started talking to me about being his friend. And so it's okay to start in these places. Just don't, just don't stay there. Just grow in your relationship. And, and so when you're, when you're a business associate with God, he, he doesn't really want that. You're his son. You're his daughter. But when you, when you come from the place of being a son or daughter, then the, God's he's great with the petitions. But when he's your business partner, partner, you might get frustrated. Your conversations with a friend, you open up your heart about some of the problems you're having. And so... This is actually confession, so this is good. This is a good kind of relationship. You're opening up your heart to the Lord. You confess to him, Lord, I'm struggling with this. I'm afraid. I feel good about this. I need this, whatever it is. He loves that. But with your lover, you sense a strong impulse to speak about what you find beautiful about him or her. Lord, you are the perfection of all beauty. You are holy. There's no one like you. You are beautiful. I love your presence. I love your majesty. Lord, I love your creation. I love the work of your hands, God. Thank you for loving me. Thank you that you're my father. Thank you for being kind to me. You're always kind to me every single day. God's initiating love. So for the younger son, the father runs out and and meets him on the road to redemption and hugs him and kisses him before he can finish his sentence. For the older brother, the father patiently pleads with him in order to win his heart. So the Pharisees are the older brothers, and Jesus is pleading with his deadliest enemies here, the Pharisees, and this, telling this parable. And so like the younger son, sometimes God jumps on us dramatically. <laughs> how many of y'all, God jumped on you in your life, and that's how you came to know him? How many of you... It's more like the other older brother where he quietly, patiently argued with you until you conti- came home. So he came, he came out of the house and he's like, please. And he's like, hey, I want you in the house. Come celebrate with us. No, no, that was me. I would go out in college, so there'd be times where the Lord would be in my passenger seat. I, I knew he was there. And I just left the party and I, and I would say this, leave me alone. He's like, nah, my oldest son. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to keep pleading with you. 
And so to, I want you to think about this. To, you know, we repent. We, we typically think about repenting of the wrongs that we've done. But think about this. To, to really become wholehearted Christians, we must also repent of the reasons we ever did anything right. Pharisees only repent of their sins, but Christians repent for the very root of their unrighteousness, the pride. God, I tried to become you. <laughs> I put myself in your place. That's what repentance is. So the three parables that we are in this chapter, the lost sheep, you have the shepherd searching for the sheep, the lost coin, the woman searches for the coin, and then two lost sons, no one searches for the younger son. Why is that? Why did Jesus purposely let, he, he's very purposeful in telling these three stories together. So those first two, shepherds searching for the sheep. Second one, woman looking for the coin. Lost sons, the father waits at the house, but he's looking. So the question is, why did somebody not search for the, the younger lost son? Who should have searched for the younger son? It was the older brother. The older brother, that was his place to, to say, Father, I know Travis just told you to drop dead and die, and he took his inheritance, but I'll go find him. I'll go talk with him on your behalf. I will bring him back home. That's what the older brother should have done. All right? What did Cain and Abel do? So you have the older and younger brother. They offered sacrifices before the Lord. The Lord was pleased with Abel's. He was not pleased with Cain's. And Cain was like this. My brother Abel. And he killed Abel. And God said, Abel's blood's crying out from the ground. And Cain did this. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I in charge of my brother? Am I supposed to take care of him? And the answer is yes. Yes. Jesus is our brother's keeper. He's the one that he would have come out on behalf of the Father, and he did come out. That's what, that's what he came to do. He came to do the opposite of what Cain did. He came to do the opposite of what this older brother did. He came to speak on behalf of of the father. And so it was at the, only at the older brother's expense that the other, younger brother can be brought back in. So the older brother knows, hey, he spent all that money. We've got two-thirds inheritance left. When we split that up three ways again, guess what? I've, I have less inheritance than what I started off with. This is costing me something to bring my younger brother back home. Because I, w I could have two-thirds, but now if I bring him back home, i got to have less money now because he's going to get a portion. Again, and he actually may end up getting the same amount as me because the older brother gets the double portion. What did Jesus do? Do we have the same inheritance as Jesus? We do. Jesus gave up his inheritance for us to have it, and now we have the same inheritance as Jesus. And so mercy and forgiveness has to be free and unmerited to the wrongdoer, but it's costly to the one that gives mercy and forgiveness. 
When you're giving forgiveness to somebody, it's going to cost you something. You just need to know that up front so you're not surprised. When you understand God's ways, it's a lot easier to cooperate with them. So when, you, when you're forgiving your roommate, you're forgiving your parent, you're forgiving your friend, you need to understand, this is going to cost me. It's free for them. It's going to cost me something. Maybe it's your pride. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's whatever. But when you understand that, then you can cooperate better. And as a result, you'll be free because you're doing it God's way. And Jesus came and set us free. So the true older brother is Jesus. And he put a flawed older brother in the story to invite us to yearn for a true one. And this is what Jesus did for us as the older brother. Jesus was stripped of his dignity and honor that we might be clothed with dignity and honor. Jesus became an outcast that we might be brought into God's family. Jesus drank the cup of eternal justice that we might have the cup of the Father's joy. Jesus became poor that we might become rich in him. Jesus was separated from the Father that we might be joined with the Father. Jesus was wounded that our wounds would be healed. Jesus became a man that we would become children of God. Jesus suffered chastisement that we, may, that we might have peace. Jesus left heaven and came to earth that we might leave earth and live in heaven. Last one didn't get it. Jesus became a servant that we might become kings. Jesus emptied himself that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Jesus became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And Jesus was separated from the Father and descended to hell that we might be reconciled to the Father and ascend to heaven. The cross, like, never gets exhausted. You never know enough about the cross. Like, all of eternity is in the cross. Like, you can't, you can't dig deep enough for all the riches in the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's part of what we're going to be celebrating in heaven. I'm going to look at Jeremy in heaven. I'm going to say, Jeremy, did you see what Jesus told, did you hear what Jesus told us about the cross yesterday? And he's like, yeah, I was, everybody heard it. <laughs> I said, that's amazing. And, and then we're going to be like, whoa, look at that. Look at that part of his glory. Oh my. All of eternity. It's going to be like that. Oh, oh. You're going to turn around. Whoa. Wow. Whoa. And you just, you're going to get hit with glory and wonder and, and amazement for all of eternity. And it's just going to be joy. It's like, oh my gosh. Is this, can this get better? Yes, it's getting better. Because God's eternal. He, did, he just, his goodness grows. So I want you to stand. And if you, uh, feel like you've been in this older brother role, this older brother thinking. I just invite you to repent of it and repent of the root of it, which is just, God, I've depended upon my own righteousness. I've been self-righteous. If you need to experience the Father's love for you, I invite you to open your heart up to that for, for you to be baptized in the Father's love. If we have our ministry team come over here,
Right now, I just want to pray for you. If you want, say, God, I need, I need to know, I need to be more secure in your love for me. I just want you to raise your hand, and I just want to pray for you. Father, I pray right now that you baptize baptize these ones with, with your love and with the full assurance of confidence in who they are in Jesus Christ, of how much you love them, of how proud you are of them, Father, that you call them son, you call them daughter. And Lord, that there would be a boldness that arises in their heart from knowing that they are loved by the creator of the universe, by their father, by the king of kings. And Lord, your word says for us to hold fast to our confidence. And Lord, I'm just declaring a holding fast of the confidence of your love for them, Lord. Lord, that the devil will not be able to steal it, kill it, or destroy it. But Lord, from this day on, this would be a marker in their life that they would know that they that they would know that they would know that they would know that they're loved by you, Father. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Blake and the crew, if y'all come up here. Jessica's got a word. So I just uh I felt like we had an opportunity as we go into ministry time. Um that um, as we receive the love of God, um, Psalms 37 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. And I just kept hearing the Lord say this morning, like, I can't wait to forgive you. And I just feel like God sits in heaven and he just thinks, I can't wait to forgive you. And when we know his love, that's what we do. We get hurt, and it is real. Travis talks about these things in his sermon, and you're like, but man, that hurts people. Like, I'm not keeping a record. I'm just, I just have a brain. Like, I remember how hard that was or how painful that was. But it's the desire of your heart to have the, the mind of, I can't wait to forgive them. Like, yes, I'm hurt, but I can't wait to forgive them. Psalms 37 says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desire of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, and he will do it. So, so just ask the Lord as we worship, like, help me to have so much of your love and your assurance in me, God that I can't wait to forgive people. Because if you have the desire in your heart, he will do it, and it will blow your mind. I'm not kidding. Out of testimony in my own life, it will blow your mind of how forgiveness will set you free and will send you down a new path. So, God, I just thank you for forgiveness. I thank you for forgiveness. Thank you, God. If you need help and want that, if you want to 
to be quick to forgive. It's the desire of your heart. I want to pray with you. I'm going to go over on the side. You're welcome to come up if you'd like help with that.